0: folks? My guest today is going to be Stephen Fearing. Steve is one of the greatest coaches of all time in freestyle mobile skiing. He spent several years in the sport and has coached for several different national teams. He's been a national team coach for Russia, uh, also Canada, Japan. He's been a consultant for China. He spent several years in the sport, coached Olympic gold medalists, world champions, World Cup winners, and has really had an illustrious career uh, in the sport of freestyle skiing. And also spent several years being influential in several different areas in the ski industry. He is uh, one of the co creators or inventors of the Solomon 1080. So, kind of the uh, twin tip free ride ski and part of that uh, free ride revolution in the late 90s, early 2000s. And is one of the co founders and creators of the ID1 uh, mogul ski. And in this episode, we go through and talk about Steve's career. We touch on some of the highs and lows and a lot of the learning lessons. And this was really a great episode. It was super insightful and had a lot of fun being able to to chat with Steve as somebody I've known for a long time. And um, I really had a great time and learned a lot of insightful and in-depth things that I think are great takeaways. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. And please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Thanks we're uh, we're moving there it is mr fearing thank you so much for uh taking the time and being able to make this happen i really appreciate it uh, i've been looking forward to to making this one happen for a while and getting to have you on such a influential figure and you know and the crazy thing is how long we've actually known each other i think the first time that i met you you had just come off of coaching olympic gold medal for uh japan in 1998 uh, i think it was or maybe it was 99 when we met it was the last year freestyle international did their camp and they actually did it up in uh up in black home and you were up there on some uh solomon uh some some of those uh 1080s that had just come out which you uh which you created or very influential in and uh i was just a tiny little little nine-year-old at the time but <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to speak with you. Uh, yeah, we've known each other for a long time, uh, known your family, um, and um, yeah, it's you know it's uh, been a, a long road of different things in skiing uh, as far as uh, not just moguls, but kind of the the free ride kick. And yeah, I remember meeting you guys uh, up in in Whistler. I remember actually going to Salt Lake uh, Olympics having dinner with your family so yeah it's it's been a a close relationship for a long time
0: that's been great uh, so one of the things that uh, just um how did you get your start into into freestyle? how did you kind of get into it um, on that spectrum
1: well um Actually, back in in uh, in my high school uh, early uh, early years of junior high, um, the, the junior world champion uh, Eric Sampson was a, a a classmate of mine. So he was one of the first junior world champions, um, and I had always been into Nordic skiing growing up in in Minnesota, Wisconsin. We, we had a lot of flatland, so. You know, I just always wanted to do, to be into to the downhill skiing and I just, uh, I, I just kind of followed that avenue. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, I've, I've pretty much stuck to, um, you know, all ski sports. I, I haven't really been just into mobile skiing or freestyle, sure. uh, uh, had some experience with alpine skiing and, um you know, it's, it's, I think all, all aspects of skiing is really important, uh, from Nordic to racing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, even did ballet uh, for about two weeks. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so that was kind of, it was a mix, you know, I kind of went in and out of every sport, uh, through my early years. And mm-hmm. I just ended up, uh, I don't know, really enjoying, um, the mobile aspect of of skiing it just was kind of the the thing that made me feel the most passionate about skiing so that's where i ended up going
0: mm-hmm. now what was it kind of i mean growing up in in minnesota what was it about that that kind of drew you into was that uh the downhill and, and everything else just being outside and cold air and wanting to go fast i mean i know you said said the nordic <laughs> day, but what what, what kind of drew you into the into the world
1: <laughs> well yeah we we kind of lived near a ski area. i used oh, okay. to uh uh you know i didn't really start al- alpine skiing or or mogul skiing until quite late <laughs> i was 14 uh, okay. so i up until that time was just uh kind of going nordic skiing around the 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 area we had a farm we just, you know, had a lot of brothers and sisters. So we spent our time doing that. But, uh, finally I just, I, one summer I decided to, to work and get, get my money together. Uh, and I bought my own ski stuff and just, I started going skiing after school every day. Uh, so it was six, seven days a week.
0: There you go. Very cool. could by the bug and then hook, hook line, and sinker ever <laughs> since,
1: huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been, yeah, it's 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 been, uh, you know, freestyle's it's been really good, um, and it's, you know, it's something that makes me feel um, uh, when I'm in the mountains, like I can ski anything, and that's why I've always had that mobile skiing passion. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting how. It, the world of skiing, you know, it's such a small world, but then it can also be so big on so many different levels. You know, uh, one of the books I'm reading right now is about uh, Jan Wenner, who's the founder of Rolling uh, Stone. And he talks about just, he grew up like skiing and, you know, he's got a place in Sun Valley and just the, you know, the thrill of going fast, the mountain air, the exercise, the camaraderie of going and skiing oh. with friends. I mean, there's so many different things about it to love. and it, And it's one of those things just, getting to to travel the world now and, and just all the different relationships and um, how they're at least, you know, in our world and, and in the competitive world, they're your friends, but at the same time you're trying to beat them or you're trying to, you know, get those medals and achieve all those, all those things for uh, whoever you're working for, whatever nation it might be. And it's, it's tight knit and and competitive. And at the same time, it's just uh, it's such a cool um thing that you know really love and it's crazy to see the the paths that you go down and and where it leads you know I mean looking at your resume and all the different um countries and nations that you've coached for and and had influence on I mean it's just so uh impressive and and inspiring to me um about what what the possibilities are yeah no absolutely I mean it's Mm -hmm. um and not just in the mogul skiing aspect you know I mean just with uh you know I remember eight I think it was Probably like nine, I think, when 13 came out. Four Boys Productions came out with 13. I think my parents bought it uh, for me for Christmas, and it was those Solomon uh, 1080 skis that came out. I was like, mm-hmm. what are these things? People are skiing backwards? I mean, the whole thing, you had the punk rock yeah. going with it. It was this whole... Um, <laughs> just uh vibe that was like man i really want to be a part of this like this is super super cool um so how did how did that kind of come about i mean i guess moving forward just a little bit and into the coaching realm and then um uh, free ride kind of started and you were at the forefront there working um for for solomon kind of after you finished with uh with japan or was it at the same time you were in development like coaching japan
1: yeah i i actually got I would say put on notice (laughs) because uh, (laughs) uh, I had been kind of under contract with Solomon Japan Mm -hmm. for the years up until the Nagano Olympics and they wanted to kind of make a full-time program. And and that's one thing that, um, you know, compared to let's say current days back, back then national teams didn't have as many training camps. So I was, okay. Uh, I was a Solomon coach privately for the Solomon skiers in Japan, and um, it, it, we just came off a gold medal in Nagano, uh, Solomon skier, um, and they just said, hey, um, we're not sure if we're going to really continue with moguls. Um, we want to continue your, your your contract. It, it was uh, just a, you know, an annual contract. It was a good supplement because it was something that that made the job full time, I would say. And, mm-hmm. um, so I, uh, I left Japan and I, I got back to Whistler. Um, and I was sitting in my, my condo with, uh, Mike Douglas mm-hmm. and, uh, we, we had been, uh, talking about, you know, how the, the skiers, uh skiers, you know the Cousins, uh, JP Eau Claire's, uh, they, they they were just spending a lot of time in the half pipe um, and um, and in the slope of or just sitting in the park so um, we just spent two weeks like cashing it out, kind of sitting in in my my place and I said, you know I got to come up with a proposal um, and we did a, a, a complete package of making a team and making the ski um. I went back to Japan and I met with like six, seven different ski companies. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously they thought I was, I, they didn't really know the reason, but I, I was connected enough uh, from the uh, the ski association and our success that I just went in um, and I was able to talk to, you know, directors of marketing and presidents and went to seven companies. And in the beginning, everyone said, no, uh, Mike actually, Douglas went to the U S uh uh kind of subsidiaries or mm-hmm. the yeah, also the french and everyone said no so w- it was <clears throat> basically it was six weeks after we had we had put the project together and everyone had said no so we were just like oh, what are we to do it's just something good and uh then all of a sudden solemn japan called me back and they just um because the marketing director had been out at that time and i showed it to the president sales guy and he said you know, this is the coolest thing. You guys gotta, you know, you gotta come back. Uh, um, we love the videotape. We want to do something. So they called Solomon France and said, uh, "We'll fund it. We'll, 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 uh, we'll pick up the tab." So mm-hmm. it was Solomon Japan that actually kind of really pushed uh, kind of the project through because everyone else, you know, when we directly talked to them, they didn't want to do it, which was crazy. <laughs>
0: wow that's pretty cool so how long did it take once kind of the the wheels got turning and they they kind of said hey we'll 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 fund it uh because the response is obviously pretty awesome (laughs) and influential Uh, for years to come (laughs) twin tips
1: (laughs) well yeah and it's it's no secret a lot of you know Peter Judge from Canada we always joke about it it's just you know the Olimar skis reinvented <laughs> so you know t- <laughs> my grandparents had those in the garage so uh no it's just <laughs> you know it was it, it, it was um it was actually the fastest ski uh concept uh to market that um Salomon's ever done um so basically it was I think seven or seven and a half months. So yeah, uh, we uh, so that was early summer uh, when they finally said, you know, we'll fund it in June. Um, we were in Teen France in, a, in October, mm-hmm. and um, Solomon Japan. I was with we were doing a, a, a Japan camp with Solomon. Mm-hmm. And they just drove me to Annecy and we we're at a, a sushi place and okay. uh, a white van pulled up at the end of dinner and there was like 50 skis in there. And they said, you know, choose, choose three or four shapes. Uh, and um, we, we just took three or four shapes. And and I just explained about the, you know, the twin tip and how, how much we wanted. And um, in December, in Le Plante, France, uh, we did our first test. I did it with the Bogle skiers after the, the competition, actually after the trainings and the competition. Okay. Right there in Le Plante. So, um, and then it was, you know, hitting the market that spring. Um, wow. Pretty full on,
0: pretty full on. Wow. And what was the response by, um, the, the testers and everything? What did they, what did they think of it?
1: Um, yeah, it was, it was great. I, I mean, it was, it was, a it was a mix of every country. And I think that was, uh, that really kind of made the, uh, kind of the spirit and, and, and part of the growth. Like I, I remember some of the young French kids, uh, from the mobile team were just, you know, they were going off, you know, right away, like landing switch, uh, everything, it was, it was, we were you know small kickers but you know we uh yani yani latala was one of them he you know he he was probably probably one of the big influencers in 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 kind of making that ski um um d- doing new things cuz when when we did a competition that, that next year in japan mm-hmm did some crazy tricks so uh, yeah it was mostly mogul guys in the beginning or you know guys that transferred over from mogul um, sure. and uh, yeah, it was just kind of a, created by that ultimatum of you know <laughs> we got to find something new otherwise uh, we probably won't keep uh, keep moving in freestyle so yeah it was it was a big thing for them
0: no, I mean, super influential. I mean, you look at a lot of those people that were on that ski. I mean, really were um, mogul ski. I mean, you know, started in that freestyle world that decided to to branch off. I mean, uh, Mike Douglas, as you mentioned, um, J.F. Cousin, uh, JPL Claire, a lot of the Canadian, I mean, Vinnie Dorian. Um, mm-hmm. uh, who else
1: was in there that was going through? Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of French from when, you know, came off uh, of mobiles. And, right, and Candide, the- Candide throwbacks, Candide. right? Yeah, yeah he's yeah. still in it.
0: Um, no. I mean, T- Tanner Hall, uh, he was probably like 15 or 14 at the time when he was young, but I mean, he was a former, uh, mm-hmm. he was a former bump skier in there as well um Mm -hmm. so yeah it's pretty interesting and and Mm -hmm. wild to see the growth Mm -hmm. now every single ski it uh at least that you see in the U.S. it seems are pretty much twin tips or that variety or Solomon or something you know I mean it's all um interesting to see uh that's got to be pretty cool to see the evolution and I mean that ski was so popular and that uh that Mm -hmm. color and then they had the the more thin the white uh with the with the S in there and kind of more of that that mogul ski um which came out which i remember i yeah. wanted but they didn't make they yeah. didn't make grom size at the time <laughs> at least yeah. in that at least yeah. in the bunski.
1: ski yeah <laughs> yeah it was the the 1080 mogul i remember mm-hmm. yeah i think that's what yanniski on um, um in salt lake city mm-hmm.
0: yeah no super uh yeah that was really really different uh really cool ski so after that did you i mean you have the success I guess we'll we'll backtrack a little bit into into more of kind of getting the start into into coaching because I know you were with the Canadian team from ninety-two to ninety-five, right? As kind of the uh technical coach and, and development coach there and did
1: Yeah.
0: Right. So yeah. You kind of got the got the start in there. Now um were you coaching on like more of the provincial or, or club club level before you kind of got in there? How did how did the coaching start kind of begin for you?
1: Well, actually coaching uh really started when um uh at Whistler doing summer camps with Cooper Shell and Desovich, Steve okay. Desevich at the World Mogul. Um so it, it that kind of created my uh, some aspiration to be more involved in, in the coaching aspects. And uh yeah, I um I just started uh, actually doing some junior programs in japan at that time Uh, and after um, some camps that you know i was training at the same time and trying to make some money so used coaching as kind of that you know uh, way to be on snow uh, Mm -hmm. and create uh, some income at the same time and then um, lisa mcintyre one of the you know, one of the great technical skiers, I, silver medalist in Lillehammer. I started working with her in '92, private coaching, um, and at the same time, um, started working with the Canadian development team. Uh, so, you know, I, I was just, uh, I get, I guess everything just wasn't planned. It just kind of. It, it came together, you know, it's just mm-hmm. trying to make ends meet and still trying to compete and be on snow as much as I could. So I had kind of a few different camps and um, when the Canadian development team job came up, uh, yeah, I just, you know, applied and worked with the, the, a lot of, you know, Mike Douglas was one of my athletes actually. So, you know, there <laughs> was just uh, a, <laughs> it, it was Full circle. like 30, 35 athletes I think and you know it was the one time I learned how to coach where I'd be talking to someone watching the next person at the bottom of the course and then glancing up at the top person and, and <laughs> never really looking at the person I was watching you know two people at a time and talking to a third so yeah. Wow I, 35 I guess, people that's <laughs> insane that's crazy. Uh, yeah wow. I was in yeah we this constant uh we you know obviously worked into a slimmer team later on but yeah it was it was something i think that in the beginning that canada really um they uh, peter judge actually uh people don't know peter judge is the current ceo of canada who's who's one of the the big influences in my life he actually uh changed what coaching is in freestyle skiing. He's he's the one that actually made it a profession um mm-hmm. and I I think that's what kind of drew me even though I I grew up in the US my, my mom's Canadian but mm-hmm. uh, by all means a uh, uh, American grew up in the US and but I never worked for the U.S. I, I just ended up in the Canadian system and mm-hmm. you know it was the the levels and the training uh, that they provide coaches, and I, I just really, you know, feel that um, you know Peter um, hiring Steve Zesevich in the beginning just really changed how um, freestyle works. Because in the beginning mogul skiing, it was this kind of more volunteer coaches like Park Smalley back at the time in the U.S. So, you mm-hmm. know, he you know maybe do two camps a year. Um, you have a lot of the old school, um, Peter Young, Joe Ward, but it wasn't like a, a a real profession. So Canada really changed that and influenced the world because right now, I mean, you have specialty coaches, you have, you know, team managers, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah.
0: And when did you first, so when did you first meet Peter?
1: Um, 83. Uh, and at, uh, Freestyle
0: International. <laughs> Freestyling, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you had no idea how influential that camp really was, right?
1: <laughs> the world of of, of skiing freestyle. <laughs> the world of skiing freestyle. That's
0: that's for sure. Definitely. That's funny. So you're working under Peter, uh, or you're helping with with the development team there. And then so after ninety-five, when do you kind of make that that transition to uh, Japan?
1: Well, yeah, I I was, um, there was a group in Colorado uh, and that's where I was training at the time, a Japanese group and they were connected into, um, not national team members, but they were quite involved in mobile skiing. And, Mm -hmm. um, I, I had been doing camps with them and they just, uh, you know, when, when Nagano was decided, um because at the, at the time they, they were more into uh, aerials and uh, ballet and uh, they didn't really have a strong mobile program. So I was uh, one of the first foreign coaches uh, or was the first foreign coach that they had worked with. But again, they, you know, their coaching system, it was more of a, a volunteer coaching system. Mm-hmm. So um I just, um, yeah, when they decide to hire someone, I think it was like a four-month or six-month contract and it just started that way. And then every year it just got uh, a little bit better. And and, uh, I just spent um, a a lot more time uh, trying to make it a full-time program, kind of more what Peter's envisioned. So kind of bringing that Canadian, you know, full structure full year training into um japan and and getting that uh that professional side of it because they had some good skiers for sure at the time when i got there Mm -hmm. but not the structure
0: and how hard um i mean now you've done it so many so many times but how hard is it to come in and and create that structure and how much would you say it's it's changed for you over the years from when like you're just kind of in Japan there to, as you go on and and Russia and consulting in China and all those different, like what are those, uh, I guess, learning lessons or or experiences and takeaways where you've kind of tinkered with, okay, maybe we don't really need, like what are the needs versus what are like the have to haves and kind of some of those things in, in creating those structures. Cause that has to be super difficult on so many different levels of, Having to create the the proper system, and I feel like it's kind of ever changing as well.
1: Right, exactly. You just said it perfect at the end, Bobby. You, see, you know, it's constantly evolving. Um, mm. I I can't really, you know, pick out uh, one thing from last year that maybe two years, you know, maybe I didn't agree with and definitely 10 years ago I thought it was the most important so it's just yeah it's changing all the time sure. um my experience with the teams that I have started with um in trying to make a full-time program it's it's just hard work I mean you just you have to get your hands dirty you have to do every <laughs> job you have to be working uh, you know just crazy hours um because you you when you go to these teams um, they they don't have the resources in the beginning but you know what kind of training and time and um, you know amount of work the athletes need to put in and so you spend a lot of you know your personal time and and energy just to get those things running but by the time I started working with uh, you know after after Japan after Salt Lake um, you know it's kind of a the uh, the reverse, way, you know you, you you get results and then you start getting funding, um, you know. But we all know we need funding to get results <laughs> a lot of the time. And I and um, so you know, Japan started getting the funding, so we started being able to hire more uh, more specialty staff, um, you know, things to keep the athletes healthy, uh, physios, you know, trainers. But by the time, um, you know, I started working with Russia, it was, I mean, for me, its it was, you know, I had a good idea of every position I wanted to fill. And I started out with a physical trainer and then I hired an assistant um, technical coach, uh, Jim Sheeman, who's now working in Canada. And, uh, for, and then we hired an uh, air, special, uh, air specialist coach, uh, Darcy Downs, you know it's from your 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 <laughs> old country of of <laughs> Ireland now, but uh, you know I just I have a I would say a rolodex of of a lot of uh, people that I've worked with over the years, and I I just was able to kind of pull the best from from each person in in different areas, uh, just really you know making sure that we had kind of the, the most uh, technical or the strongest technical base people in each area. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's, you know, something that, you know, I've been able to learn. And I think it, you, you probably hear a lot of times, you know, these, these companies, they, you know, they, they, they learn so much because they're sitting around a, a large table of uh, experts in, in every aspect of work, and so they mm-hmm. learn so much. And after two, three years, they probably you know know more um, than when they came into the business. And that's how I feel. You know, I've just been fortunate to work with so many amazing coaches and and great people. That uh, you know, I just try to absorb as much as I can. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's something that uh you know i i i, I feel lucky um mm-hmm. and i and i also have a lot of you know international workings with different countries of coaches so you know i i i it, i think freestyle we we have uh kind of that outside of central europe connection um so i and you know, I've used a lot of Asian countries and, and uh, you know, Russia's been one of my many, um, I've still a lot of friends there and I have a lot of friends in Belarus and Ukraine. So it's, it's something that, you know, I think freestyle, it's, it's really been an effect this last year with us, uh, you know, not to bring in politics, but I, sure. you know, I think that's a, a strong part of, of uh, the freestyle family and um yeah i i learned so much from every country and i don't i don't think i necessarily you know just show up at the the table and give them everything you know i've I've come away full myself so it's been Mm -hmm. good
0: so um making sure you absorb like as much as you can and being very observant um would you say i mean just kind of going into for you personally like what are some of those unique qualities that, that you kind of think that you have to be able to to help and and provide um, just throughout your career and, and you know, the success that you've had? Because um, one thing, I mean, I definitely just, you know, listen to you there. I mean, definitely talk like uh, you don't, uh, it seems like you don't think that you're the smartest person in the room and you listen and absorb that information. And then, Kind of able to to delegate and and let people kind of make decisions and make mistakes and and uh things of that nature but w- what would you say just some are, um, some of those unique qualities
1: yeah um, well i i it's kind of hindsight I, I i I really never knew um, when I started coaching what you know what kind of coach I'd be that i'm I'm someone who empowers um, the people I work with, athletes, coaches, um, but I make decisions when people don't like to make decisions. And and if I can explain that further, it's just Mm -hmm. like, you know, if, if, if an athlete comes to you, um, and maybe it could be as simple as like, you know, what, what trick should I do? Which line should I ski? Mm -hmm. Um, first of all, the question is, you have to look deep into why they're asking the question is because, you know, you could you could say an answer, like, Oh, you look good in both lines and, you know, these four tricks are looking good. But when someone comes to you, it's really, you just have to take kind of the responsibility off their shoulders so that they can free themselves up to, to focus on the task. Mm -hmm. And with that, i remember many times as a coach you know um th- there's a risk in that because you know die by the sword <laughs> you know it's it, it, things yeah. can things can go things can go great but it, you know it's never 100% and but i i just learned that being precise and exact on decisions when when the athlete asks and how they ask it, it it's really important because they're basically, you know, coming to you for, for help to relieve themselves of kind of that external pressure. And 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 I think that's important.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's super inside. I mean, I've I've definitely remember times earlier on in like, you know, trying to come up with those decisions and that can be a hard thing when um you want the athlete to make the decision or they're the, and, and mm-hmm. I guess uh, probably being younger, like I, I guess I was naive enough to not understand that side of like them wanting some of that guide, that real guidance. And, and as you say, like you helping them, like making the decision, sometimes it's been wrong. Sometimes it's right, but whatever else, at least there's a clear cut. This is the move. This mm-hmm. is what we're doing. Stick to stick to kind of the the plan from there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's and you know it's it's something that um, uh, you over the years uh, the generations have changed too, mm-hmm. um, but the message is is kind of similar throughout every every person and and um, when you can when you can help a person uh, relieve some pressure and be able to focus more on their. competition preparations and kind of their their, whatever their mental state because every every athlete has a different uh, mental mental preparation or kind of uh, competition uh, let's say a knack for it and if if you as a coach can kind of take some of those pressures away it it just it it makes them more confident in you know without kind of the giving them the you know you know, you can do everything or, you know, it gives them the, you know, you know, my coach is, you know, someone that, you know, kind of can make those decisions. And so I can relax a bit. Mm
0: -hmm. No, it's definitely, uh, makes, makes a ton of sense for sure. What, so, so kind of off of that, like, what are, what are some of those things, I guess on the, on the day to day, or maybe it's comp day organizationally, what, like, what do you kind of decide, that helps you stay focused on what you, either you need to achieve or the team or, or a certain particular athlete? Like what are those things that that kind of helps you stick to the bullet points or, or stay focused on on certain items?
1: Um, well, I, I would say the most influential or the biggest um, point in my career was 97 it was before Nagano Olympics and um, it was the world championships on the same course. Okay. And we blew it. We blew it back. uh, um, (laughs) Oh boy. So, you know, I just, just kind of going back and, and kind of looking at, you know, how things are going, the training. And I just remember the the leader of the the freestyle in Japan, he was, just, he was kind of this old sensei type guy. And I had to go meet with him and I was so nervous. And he just, he basically said, you know, he just looked at me with a soft smile. And when I walked in, he says, I know you'll learn from this and, and, you will come back stronger next year. And the words, I know it's as simple as as they can be, but uh, (laughs) I just just went away and things that I noticed um, is just how in competition, and Mm -hmm. then every competition has different levels of kind of that excitement. So every athlete, uh, you know, to get experience like a Michael Kingsbury probably enters the world cup gate and probably has zero nerves, but you go to world championships and the Olympic games. It's, it's kind of that wave. We, you know, you have to understand where to catch your, your moment. Mm-hmm. So I, I just realized that at the world championships, it was just like people were moving quick, eating quick, talking quick, <laughs> so everything it was if you just kind of it was like watching everything in in like you know times three times four mode
0: mm-hmm. and
1: so i just thought you know one thing that i have to do and it was through some some readings i had done and i think it was part of living in japan at the time is just trying to in stressful moments um Slow, slow everything down. So if you if you you know go into a stressful situation and you do kind of deliberate um, things to breathe slowly, um, take your time, eat slowly. And so when we got to Nagano, I just uh, at the Olympics, I, w- I was basically like holding athletes at the finish for like 90 seconds because I could just remember from the year before they come to the finish and then like within five seconds, they wanted to go up to the, the course or, so, um, you know, I just really slowed everything down for the preparation for the two weeks before. Like mm-hmm. I just, and slowing it down. I mean, it's just, it's kind of that, that outside, um, influential things mm-hmm. um, like don't put anything in a rush and and speak kind of in a, in an elevated stressful situation so you know I I think that uh, what I've still try to do day you know competition to competition sure is just is read each person and, and understand like you know are they doing those quick movements and and not really in the moment you know are are they at the finish line or are they you know um on the last training are they at the competition so you just have to keep in the moment and, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's just by slowing yourself down
0: now um from training, did you think that uh Toya was going to go out I mean did she train super well and everything else i mean did, were you like if she goes out and skis to her capabilities, she can, she can walk away with the gold here.
1: Um, well, <laughs> Steve Desvich said it one time. It's like, I, I have a knack of, of get elevating people to a level that he'd never thought they could get to. So <laughs> I guess I disbelieve. in that's a good compliment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you, you know, I had faith uh, in, all my athletes and in, in, in the past. And, you know, it doesn't matter if they're the number one or 10th on the team. I'm just, I, I put the same amount of work and, and faith into each person. So looking back on Ty, I, I would say um, in the beginning, no, I, I really didn't, uh think we we were in a good su- situation because a lot of personal things happened in her life her 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 father passed away um right after the world championship, so it was not even a year later Wow uh, she was really stressed um, it was just like an emotional roller coaster mm-hmm. so um I spent a lot of time and effort just you know teaching her about how to to plan um you know uh just simple things so like we had a I remember a 20-minute plan because I thought a 20-minute plan she was someone that you couldn't keep focused for for more than a, a, an hour a day maybe 40 40 minutes a day an hour <laughs> so you know I came up with a 20-minute plan but I just gave her a way of you know being able to to deal with it. Everything that she was stressed about, whether it was, you know, um, what had happened to her family, if it was about, you know, the stress of the competition, and so we we use that twenty minute plan. And at different points, um, you know, I would specifically say, "Okay, now it's time we, you know, we have to think about your father, and let's think about kind of what he's meant to your life." And the, mm-hmm. And then we go through a warm-up and do something and it's like, okay, now we have to go through, you know, what what the competition plan is. So through that 20 minute plan, um and practicing it, it's not just competition day. You have to practice it. Sure. So by getting ready for that, um, when it came to Olympics, it, it again took a lot of, of stress off your shoulders. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. That's, I mean, she's skied great there. And that's, that's, um, you know, it's one of those things you always see and it's, it's, I think it's one of the joys or one of the things that I really enjoy about coaching is just how every athlete is so different and so unique. And especially in this, right. you know, it is an individual sport, but being able to find the right buttons or the right things to make that light bulb moment or, you know, to have things kind of click and, and work and, you know some people you can be hard on some people you can't like there's just so many different variabilities and my dad always said you know you got to have more than one arrow in your quiver you can't just use that same arrow over and over again you got to kind of okay got to try this maybe that'll work and and you never know what phrasing or my, i mean you know there's so many ways to say the exact same thing so it's always interesting about which one is going to work in the right way to get them to to make that change or make that big big leap and whether it's slowing things down coming up with that you know 20 minute plan or with, I mean it's super so at least I find it super interesting and it's super cool and and unique to get those those insights and and just the relationship building that you have with with those athletes I mean they all I mean you it, I've you have like so many little like family members I feel like you know especially over the years you know you you invest mm-hmm. as you talk about all the hard work and all the time into those athletes all for an unknown I mean you never know what's going to happen at the end uh obviously you have what you're hoping for but life seems to to go in <laughs> wild ways
1: <laughs> yeah yeah you, you 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 summed it up really well and yeah it's something that uh, you know next year you know there's things I, i'll definitely change and um, yeah, I, I, I really feel that uh when I spend more time with people who kind of have new experiences, um, a variety of experiences. Um, and I, I think now as you're working with different teams, you're going to start feeling like how different cultures and countries influence a lot, you know, and I've Mm -hmm. always taken my jobs. I love coaching, but I've always loved more the cultures, or the different languages and so that's been part of how i've been led on this international path because it makes the job more interesting for me Mm -hmm. interesting
0: Hmm. now what like like speaking to that what are what are some of those things that kind of help you uh stay focused on whether the daily or monthly kind of plans and things like that um to the different cultures and languages kind of keep keeps you engaged and and i mean it's a whole new world of learning i feel like you know when you go from japan to to russia that's a pretty big jump in in Mm -hmm. culture and language and everything else so so what are some of those things that kind of um are is able to help you stay focused um well you know
1: i i would say that it's it's uh Having a good yearly training plan and and then from there it's quite easy to just kind of break it down into monthly and day by day situations so um you know it's again something that back in in the beginning working in Canada um, you know the four year two year one year plan was taught to us very early on and they were they were one of the you know, Leaders in freestyle, I would say, of really focusing on how to make bike etc. Mm-hmm. Cycling, we you know worked worked with uh, some really interesting people at the time. So once you have those kind of plans set out in front of you, they're you know like your dad said, you always you have a good map, but maybe you have to go a different road. <laughs> you know, you never have the exact <laughs> path, and, and and you find things. Changing, but just having that general plan um, and trying to just understand it, then it's easier to make those those path changes when you're in the moment.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's definitely uh, it's it, having that plan set forth and kind of understanding mm-hmm. when those cha- challenges or whatever things may may arise, like you may lose some luggage, like uh, or or something like that on a simple stop. I I, I, I luckily it was only me that lost bag. But everybody else, uh, everybody else got theirs. It's more important that the athletes have their bags anyway. I'm not competing. I'm just standing at the bottom, and I feel like I can wear my, I can fit into Avital some of her clothes, my wife's clothing. I can just wear some of those.
1: Or, you know, the same size. Be a little tight. It's and gonna be you, a little
0: tight, but we can make yeah, it work.
1: <laughs> and Idray, it's it's not that far to walk, actually. Right. Yeah. To, not, to get to okay. the other side.
0: <laughs> not too bad to walk at all. Um, so one thing you had kind of, uh, touched on that I just wanted to ask a little bit more on is just some of those, um, failures or perseverance that kind of help that, that future success. And you kind of touched on it with, uh, 1997 and kind of, you know, um, not yeah. having the best results that you guys wanted and then kind of turning that around the next year. What, what are some of those other, um, examples for, for you just in, in perseverance, uh, you know, or challenging times that you've had that have kind of propelled uh, that future success, and kind of some of those learning lessons that that you've taken.
1: Um. Well, it's it's observation. I would say reading, just reading, reading okay. the people, reading the people around you, um, understanding, kind of. I, you know, I've I've had people say, you know, I I have a a, a sense that, uh, you know, I can, I can gather what people are 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 feeling um, before they. I'm very sensitive in that in that realm of things. So, you know, I I find those those points important where you know maybe before the athlete knows that you know, maybe they're stressed about. Uh, you know, something preparing for the competition. I kind of feel it. I, mean, I headed off without trying to get them, you know, kind of engaged in their stress, but trying to bring them into a place where they can find confidence in that. Um, and, you know, it's one thing going back in the beginning when I worked with the Canadian development team and mm-hmm. and it was a, you know, Uh, a lot of athletes that moved on to be coaches in free ride and and mogul aerials Um, it's just when you get into that gate uh, there has to be a real sense of the confidence that you say you know Mm -hmm. you can't just be you know that cheerleader coach you have to you have to say positive things, but they re- when you say them, they really have to be in a foundation of something true. Because if you don't have that foundation of, of truth, when you when you're trying to give that positive kind of lift to the athlete, they're gonna they're gonna feel it when they're under the when they're under the gun or they're you know jumping from the frying pan to the fire. They're gonna <laughs> not trust those things. So it's it's sure. just important to always honesty, truth. Uh, foundation of of what you communicate to them has to be there
0: mm-hmm. Ab- absolutely that definitely getting my getting my notes in over here just making sure so you're, t- <laughs> you're talking um about um doing uh not only like of reading people and kind of getting a sense there do you have a lot of um books or literature that you've kind of read to help in kind of just setting some of those philosophies or or foundations that you've come up with with um i mean over over the years
1: yeah um actually it was there was some soviet uh when i was an athlete there was a cassette tapes we used to have cassette tapes. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, this yeah. Pro- <laughs> <laughs> I brought this pro brought this program with some workbooks, but he, he was uh he was from track and field. Um okay. it wasn't a book, but he was he was teaching about um targeting and you know uh, you know workload and unload so to 18 Mm -hmm. I I did it was Soviet times Um, so it was a a, a Soviet uh, and I can't remember his name at the moment but I'll I'll put him in the I'll look it up and send it to you later Um, and then when I was in Asia it was actually uh, a lot of influence from just Asian philosophy um you know, especially uh, let say in in the Chinese philosophies of, you know just how you can kind of control your thought emotions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I used to walk around with cue cards from you know different quotes from Ch- Chinese philosophers. So it's i it, I guess it's not just specific books, but sure just trying to gather information from different cultures at different times.
0: And I mean, it's, do you feel that's made you, I mean, just much more rounded being able to know those kind of different, because um, it's gotta be difficult to, I guess, um, get that message across. I mean, does it make it easier when you have a better understanding of the culture to be able to um, get through to some of those athletes or different people in the organization that you're, that you're working with?
1: Yeah. Well, real life experience of living. So sure. I lived in, in you know, Japan for on and off for 20 years. Um, and even though Asian cultures are very different, there's a basis of similarity um, mm-hmm. China, Korea to, to uh, japan and i i just um yeah i think being kind of really in 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 the in the situation in the day-to-day life uh, you you start to learn um how those things really can mean something and back to you know when i grew up in in the u s and spent time in canada it's it's kind of like you can take those past uh experiences and and bring them into the the most current situation so yeah it's it's been it's been important for me to always have um you know a, a time where i'm just a hundred percent into um the culture that um I'm, I'm working with. And that way I can just, you know, better feel and better understand um, what's mm-hmm. going on. You know, it, it doesn't seem like it, but, you know, a- Asian and Russia, of course, are extremes, but mm-hmm. you know, I spent a lot of time in, in Austria and then Austria and then the Swiss are so different. And you start to find this little things so when you start um, really getting into the into the situation of day-to-day life and spending Mm -hmm. a lot of you know time there so uh, i think it's important um, Mm -hmm. to immerse yourself in in many different aspects of life
0: do you find that difficult i mean going going around i mean it seems like it would be uh, i mean but that seems like that's one of the unique things to you is that you kind of enjoy that being able to get into the culture and and things like that for me that seems like it's it's a hard thing to to be able to immerse yourself but maybe i just need to be more open-minded
1: <laughs> uh, yeah i don't know this is something it's been uh something i've always aspired uh, mm-hmm. uh i just love um you know it's, just, it's really rare that i'll find something that i dislike in a culture you know I, yeah, there's things that I would not bring back to my life day to day, but you know, it's <laughs> when when I when I'm in someone's country or I'm, in, I'm looking like it's I mean someone's home, I can really embrace everything in, in their surroundings and understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's you feel relief sometimes when you you're in a let's say a situation where you kind of want to take a break. Uh, you know, from, from that. Um, but I think, I think it's part of, you know, growing, there's things that, um, in every country I've been that I still carry with me. And Mm -hmm. it's some, something that, um, if I'd never lived in those countries or, or worked in those countries and did all aspects of life, it, it would not have, uh, Influenced me in the same way, so you know, I've, I have every country that I've worked with inside of me, and I, I, I think it's, it's developed me as a person and a coach.
0: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, that's super, super cool. So. um well, just uh, for those out there, just kind of maybe they're starting to get work their way into coaching or just uh, maybe they're athletes or just in general. What, what would you be some words of wisdom um, that we kind of haven't touched on uh, so far to maybe maybe help them with either they're struggling or things are going really well? What what kind of um, words of wisdom would you ha- would you have?
1: Uh, wisdom. <laughs> um. I I would just say enjoy the process and I know that's cliche in a lot of ways, but you know, I've I think no matter what level of athlete you're working with, the development, you know, you can be working in a region, you can be working in a club, you can you can be doing a, a fun camp, you could be you know, with your best skiers on the national team. But every development is just something that you have to just ingrain into kind of you know how you're how you're doing your 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 coaching is is uh everyone has a different coaching style, but just the process of really of teaching and, and mm-hmm. breaking it down I think you know coaching is I just like teaching and mm-hmm. teaching doesn't mean necessarily um demanding and and this is the way it is it's it's like trying to get to all experiences and different experiences to the athlete telling you, you know make that growth and enjoy the process because you know what the finish line is we never know <laughs> every sure. athlete yeah. is uh um different um but if you can let them enjoy the process it's 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 good for you as a as a as a person as a coach you feel much more satisfaction than a result you know Mm -hmm. just seeing those those small breakthroughs and and steps uh, i think it's so important process all about the process
0: and that's always the thing too right it really is the process and that part of the journey <laughs> getting to go through because i mean at the end of the day you get that result and you get to or you don't get the result and you either enjoy it or you don't and then it's just right back to training again anyway you might take a slight break but then you're just climbing up the water ramp or you're at the top of another mobile course somewhere just trying to get better or whatever else might happen right yeah. so you better be enjoying the ride because uh otherwise why are you doing it <laughs>
1: Yeah no and same in coaching I mean I've you know spent a year back in in uh, Alberta but I enjoyed it it was mm-hmm. really kind of you know it's the path of you know just always going up is not it's not first of all it's not going to happen and just you know if you enjoy your work and your coaching you're going to enjoy it in at any level mm-hmm. um, no matter where you're, you're at and same as uh, building courses. I think I've shoveled this more this October than I have in the last five years.
0: So. Uh, it's building season, you know, working those shoulders and everything. <laughs> now, I got I got a question. Some people might be upset with this and you don't have to, but I'm just curious, you know, six-time Olympic sure. coat, uh, coat, like been a part of six <laughs> different Olympics. What's the favorite? And what's the least favorite? I mean, what are the, or they all have their own, That you enjoyed and that you loved and uh, I'm just curious there there's so many different ones to kind of kind of go into do you have a particular one that is a favorite and one you really hated or no (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: no I I think I need to be politically correct (laughs) I don't know who's going to be watching this (laughs) but every you know I'm nostalgic I, I just think the earliest Olympics, it, it just felt different. Now it mm-hmm. just feels more com- commercial, and I'm not saying it's the you know whether it's it's nothing to do with country, it's nothing to do with the uh, location. It's just maybe I'm just getting kind of numb numb to it. But uh, <laughs> it just it seemed like in the beginning it was just you know like training on NBC Sports back. You know when you had four channels on the TV and sure, you're just yeah. watching Olympics, it just felt more, more nostalgic. So mm-hmm. the earlier, the better for me. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: got. You. Uh, now another thing I wanted to touch on, which especially um, we can't we can't forget. I mean, ID One, uh, pretty sure oh. it's got the monopoly on mogul skiing right now. I don't know. There's there's not too many other of those skis uh, kind of out there. Mm-hmm. How did? How did that, uh, because that kind of came a little bit after um, your time with Solomon and everything else, how uh, just kind of talk me through that kind of brainchild and the birth of the now dominant, I think they have uh, the last three or four Olympic gold medals on the men's side and uh, probably on the women's side as well. I mean, it's been a it's been a run of ID one (laughs) that doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. (laughs)
1: Well, the, the meat of the story was actually Eiko um, Amura uh, mm-hmm. was seen with uh, heart. And um, it was something to do with, uh, it was very difficult to get Japanese um, to change to companies. So she wasn't coming to Solomon and her sponsor was uh, Bole. Uh, right. Japan mm-hmm. and which is Fujimoto mm-hmm. um, and uh, he just said to me one day I, I want to make a ski and so uh, we were at, um, like ISPO in Japan like the ski show yeah. and, uh, he just came up to me and he said okay we want uh we want to name this key something to do with identity. And we want it to be like one word. And so, so he just started throwing out all these ideas. And so I I gave him like three names and you know, he sat down and he just started doing Google searches to make sure everything was, you know, like he could he could uh, trademark the name and he just mm-hmm. came back with ID1 was one of the names I put forward. So we started with the name, and then, and then from there, um, it was actually Yanni Latala and uh, myself. We had a lot of influence in that, and Yanni was actually um, finishing his contract with Solomon. So it was it was him and I, um, and then Eiko. Kind of, it, it was it was pretty much a a safe uh, comparison to the. The Solomon Mogul 1080. Um, mm-hmm. As far as the the general shape, but we did change some of it. And I think uh, you know, I've I've been to both factories, Solomon and ID One mm-hmm. um, in, in Japan, and they're just different cons are just completely different on how skis are made. Like you go into Solomon factory, and it's like just robotic, and it's just like you know. Skis are just pumped out like mm-hmm. um, one, you know, one hundred every you know minute. So yeah. <laughs> you just have, a, a, uh, and then you go to you know ID one and just see the work. But uh, the wood, the Japanese wood, and you know maybe we don't have to go into kind of <laughs> it's on the ID one webpage. But the, <laughs> the wood that of of uh, of Japan is very unique because it's. It's it's light, but because of the typhoon season and everything, and the high winds that they have, the trees, the DNA of the tree has a lot of bending factors that are quite quite good. So the lightness and the bending factors of the wood, and the consistency, um, and so I think it's that's the biggest point is not only the the shaping of the ski, but the construction of the ski and, and the rebound effect it's really particular to this kind of wood so that was my sales point <laughs>
0: <laughs> well they keep selling them i mean they're by far the <laughs> uh, the best ski out there and the market is uh seems to be good mm. and they're, they're everybody i would say it's got a pretty good share of the market uh at least in freestyle mm. that's for sure it's definitely got a good got a good share. Mm. <laughs> Well, uh, Steve, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time here. This has been a lot of fun to to catch up and uh, shoot the breeze a little bit. And uh, I got, a, I got a good amount of notes here, so I'm going to go back and I'll get to listen to this again and kind of mm-hmm. absorb as much as I can. So I really appreciate you uh, taking the time and, and coming on.
1: Well, thank you, Bobby. And I wish um, you guys a, a really good uh, success in December. Um, I'll, most likely see you guys in January, um, so I'm going to be joining up with you guys, and uh, we can sit down and, and talk again. Or Love if you have to. Any questions, Absolutely. Pop, pop, pop me a, a message if you want a clarification. Anything, yeah.
0: so. Absolutely. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks right. everybody. Thanks. Appreciate
1: it. And say hi to the family.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Bye. Hey
1: everybody. I hope
0: you enjoyed today's episode. Please make sure to like, share, and subscribe if you're watching or listening on YouTube, please make sure you hit that bell button so you get notified every time a new episode drops. Thanks.